We join with the reading of God's word. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers, the flower fades. Pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this final week of Advent, God, when we um, come to know you fully, Lord. We thank you for the blessing of this weekend from a marriage here yesterday to a baptism here just previously and uh, culminating into communion, God, that this season is about you and that um, what we are doing in this life here is striving to see you and to uh, see you with awe and glory. And so I ask that now, uh, as Nate uh, reveals your word to us, that your spirit would open up our hearts to receive that, and that we would be struck with awe this here, this final Sunday of Advent, going into Christmas, Lord, and we will worship the coming of our Savior to us. Lord, open up our hearts today, give our hearts new joy and new hope and new peace as we see your glory. In your son's name, amen. Thank you, Christian. There was a fascinating conversation uh, this week on your favorite daytime talk show, The View. It all started when Joy, one of the co-hosts, drew everyone's attention to the American Atheist Billboard campaign during the Christmas season. It featured a picture of Santa Claus, and it read, Go ahead and skip church, and just be good, for goodness sake. Joy wondered if religious folks would get offended at such a sign as this, but Candace Cameron Bure, an evangelical Christian on the panel, was asked what she thought, and she said it didn't offend her in the least. She said, in fact, it opens up a great conversation she says, if we're going to talk about being good for goodness sake, then we have to ask, what do we mean by good? And what is the standard of goodness? Maybe even ask the question, what is God's standard of goodness? 
Later in the conversation, Raven Simone, another one of the hosts from that morning, said, in her opinion, the billboard's not offensive in, in the least because it promotes goodness. And after all, all religions are really at the center about being a good person. Now, as soon as those words fell from the lips of Raven, Candace decided she'd push back. She said, that's not true. Shocked and puzzled, Raven responded, you don't think that all religions are about being a good person? And she said, well, no, not Christianity. It's about grace through faith. It's nothing that we can do. It's, it's about grace through faith and through Christ being saved. And with the mention of grace, Joy and Raven, again, got a little nervous and, and more than a little puzzled and then quickly retreated to something that they thought would be safer ground. Joy said, well, I'm a good girl. I don't know what all the fuss is about. And Candace responds, but Joy, what do you mean by good? And Joy quickly reels off a lot of things that we would agree with. You know, be good to your neighbor, don't cheat on your husband, don't steal, don't murder anybody. And Candace says, well, you know, that's good. But the Bible says that God's standard is the biblical commandments, the Ten Commandments that Moses gave in Exodus chapter 20. And Joy quickly responds, well, I'm good with those too. Well, Joy, you've never told a lie before? Oh, is that one of the commands? Never mind, um, I'm not so good with some of these commands. And then Joy kind of putters about in conversation, then circles back, and she says, okay, 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 but one out of ten's not bad. Are you really going to kill me for one out of ten? And then Candace, who knows her Bible pretty well, paraphrase, paraphrases James, and she says, God says that if you've broken one of the commandments, it's as if you've broken them all. And she says, this is why the argument of being good for goodness sakes ultimately falls short, and it leads us to the fact that we need grace. We need this thing called the gospel. And then the conversation continues for a few minutes, and Joy, still pondering on those commandments, says, you know what, I think there's, you know, there's that one on coveting too. I'm not very good at that one either. And the, all of the panel actually said, no, no, we're all, well, none of us are really good at, at, the, at the coveting one. And actually, Candace says, that's right, none of us are. And then it fades to a commercial. Now, the reason I take some precious sermon time to talk about The View, which uh, <laughs> I don't do very much, is that it highlights a misnomer about Christianity. It highlights the misnomer that Christianity is really about being good. And it's about helping you be, as it were, a good person. Now, I, I do hope that as Christ followers, goodness, and truth, and righteousness becomes characteristic of your life, but it's not actually a self-help program under making you a good person. It's exactly what Candace mentioned in that conversation. It's about grace. And it's funny that when you mention the word grace in a conversation that's outside of religious context, you usually get that look of bewilderment that you'd see in Raven's face and Joy's face if you saw the clip from that morning. What do you mean, grace? Now, I found it interesting that the panel discussion really landed on covetousness. 
there at the very end of their conversation because in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul actually is this morning in the verses that were read just a moment ago, verses 8 through 14, just previous to the section we read, Paul's actually talking about covetousness. He actually refers uh, to sexuality as an expression of covetousness. Really linking thou shalt not commit adultery to the fact that if you do, something's always been wrong with your heart. You've probably desired something that, well, you shouldn't have desired. You've coveted something. You see, lust really is simply sexual coveting. That's what it is. And, and the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew that to lust, to covet sexually in your heart is to commit sexual sin. It is to commit adultery. And when you begin to say, as those ladies admitted on public television, no doubt, that they are coveting, they're saying that the very center of their being, the seeds of every one of the commandments, and the breaking of them are already present within them. And when you begin to think about it, if you covet, every single one of the commandments has already been broken. That's why Paul, if you actually have your Bibles open to Ephesians 5, you might look back up. He says something really interesting. He says in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. But then if you jump down to verse 5, he says, For be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, using the same language, and then he says, covetous, that is what? Idolatry. Covetous is, is idolatry? Yeah, it is. You, you see, when you, when you break the 10th commandment, you're breaking the first commandment already. Because at the very center of the spirit of a coveting heart is a heart that says, I'm discontent and I'm not satisfied with my God. He is not my all in all. I need something else. To really make me happy. Now if you begin to trace that out. Every idol. Every lie you've told. Every lustful thought. Every moment of anger where you've murdered someone in your heart. Started with a coveting heart. A heart awry. And it started with you placing something more important than God. At the very throne room of your being. Now. This is why it's important when Joy says something like, you know, you know, I'm good with not cheating on my husband, but I do have a coveting heart. She's not really good with not cheating on her husband either. And it's why James can say if you've broken one of the commandments, you've really broken them, them all. And so we've got to get down to the question, what does it really mean to be good? And if we're going to argue, don't worry about going to church. Just be good for goodness sakes. You might find out that going to church is your only hope of ever getting, getting good. Because there's something within the midst of going to church, not the activity itself, but what's said there about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that may make all of the difference this Christmas season and everyone following. You see, we really are deeply flawed I mean, profoundly rotten to the core. I mean, but Paul doesn't really mince words. 
here in Ephesians chapter 5, and he's, he's aware that indeed it might offend us, indeed it offends a lot of people when we begin to talk about these things. He says in verse 18, you were darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, when he says that, he's making a devastating comment on the reality of human nature. Notice, he, he doesn't say that you were in darkness and now you are in light. As if it was something that it, you inhabited, you were in a bad environment. You know, you were raised by poor parents. Um, if you had just had a well-rounded education and had more opportunities, you wouldn't have turned out so bad. He, do, he doesn't say things like that. He doesn't say that sin is out there somewhere. He doesn't say that darkness is in the world. Now, John mentions that that is the case. So if he would have said that, it would have been true. But he's saying something different here. He says you were darkness as if to say, listen, the problem's not out there. The problem is in here. That wherever you go, there you are. And, and when you find yourself here or there, the darkness is there. Because it's in you. You were darkness. Uh, this is why this prevailing notion of, as Joy mentioned in that banter in the panel discussion that I'm a good girl, the idea of being a good girl has got to be pushed on. What do we mean by that? Because most of us kind of walk around with the conception that we're pretty good peeps. That we're doing okay. That we're not really all of that bad. And when Paul begins to register in verse Eight of Ephesians chapter 5, you were darkness. He's confronting the prevailing cultural argument with regards to, to the nature of a human being. But he says there's been a change that's happened. In this, this darkness that was you, and you that was this darkness, a shift, a radical change has happened. He says, but now, present tense, you are light. You are light. You said at the very beginning of this service, our prayer is that the Lord would make us luminaries in our community. That, that the, the light of Christ would shine in and through us. He says here, you are now light. And notice where the source of that light comes from. It doesn't come from a flashy personality. He says, you are light in the Lord. The Lord is the source of this light. It's exactly what Jesus has already communicated to us in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, here's what actually happens when you experience that, that light in the Lord, which we'll be talking about here for a bit is that you begin to be a person that lightens everything up around you. You know, it's the nature of light to do that. It's just sort of what light does. And when Paul says, you, as a person who has the light of Christ within you, begins to walk into dark places, you know what happens? Light cascades. It begins to, begins to cast its beams towards areas that were darkness and it begins to reveal what's there. And Paul says it actually has kind of two different functions, one that's negative and one that's positive in this particular passage. 
Hey, I want to start with the negative. I want you to see it there in verses 11 and 12. Look at what he says. He says, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now, now it's clear in context, the Apostle Paul is hearkening back to verse 3, where he's speaking about sexual immorality. The word there is pornea. You can hear the word pornography in that word. It's this explicit impurity that is outside of the design of what it is that God has made us to be. It is a darkness. In fact, that word impurity is the, this kind of the word for acathartic. Okay, so you hear the word cathartic, which is to have re- release or to be cleansed even in that releasing. And acathartic experience means that it's, you've not had it. You've not had a cleansing. It's impure. It's tainted. It's stained. He said this sexuality that has, that has wrecked you as a community is pornea. It is acathartic. It is something that is impure and, and, and ugly and scandalous. And, and this, this, this experience, this realization, the shameful things that even if we speak of them almost violate our consciences, these things, when the light comes into those places, what does it do? It exposes them. It exposes them. Paul is saying when you Christians are light in the Lord and you go into such places... If you do not engage in what he describes as unfruitful works of darkness, which will do what? Which will snuff out your light, which will dim your light, which will nullify the effect that you're supposed to have in those places. If your light really shines and it's spotlighting around, it's going to reveal the ugliness. Now, you know how this works. I mean, I want to give you a couple of illustrations. When you treat the minorities within your neighborhood with love, and with dignity. The kind of love and dignity of which you would treat those who are of your same race or of your same status. And you don't despise them or, or look at them down your, your nose like maybe many of the neighbors might or, or as they whisper about potential plummeting house values. Then if you hold them up with love and dignity, you know what you're being? A light. And if you're in that conversation and you speak of them with the dignity that God has made them with as image bearers of Him, you'll hear a strange hushness that might come over that conversation. A weird exposing of the darkness. When you're in that conversation with a group of men or a group of women who are just taking turns speaking disparagingly about their spouse. Not that this ever happens. And you decide that you actually want to walk in the light and speak in the honoring and respectful manner that the Bible calls you to with your spouse. You'll find that those around you will get a little nervous because you're not playing along. And that's called exposing. It's called, it's called exposing. This, this feeling of bringing the darkness out and letting it be felt as darkness. You see, I mean, when we're in darkness, we call it exaggeration. When we're in the light, we call it a lie. 
When we're in the darkness, we call it fudging the numbers. When we're in the light, we call it stealing. When we're in the dark, we call it messing around. When we're in the light, we call it sexual immorality. Feel how that's different? It's fundamentally different. In that moment, when you're naming things by the truth of the thing itself, you're casting spotlighting upon it. You're being the light of the world. There is an exposing experience that happens. You move from, oh, it's not so bad, to it's horrific. To it's just a little thing to like, maybe it's a criminal offense. Now, I should warn you, you already know this. It's hard to be the light. You're going to be tempted to to not be the light. You know, people don't really want you to be the light. They won't like it. In fact, they're going to get pretty angry about it. What what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5 is this light, he mentions this triumvirate of good, right, and true. What is this light? What's the things that are good? It's the things that are right. It's the things that are true. If, you, if you're giving yourself to these things and you're going into dark places and you are being the light and these things are being exposed, you should expect that some people are going to get fighting mad about it. Somebody's going to throw a punch. I mean, you don't have to don't take my word for it. Just look at history. I mean, you could ask someone like William Wilberforce who exposed the horror of the slave trade in England and labored for its demise and it almost killed him and it cost him most of his friends and most of his reputation. Or you could ask Alexander Solzhenitsyn who under Stalin's concentration camps in the Gulag wrote the most beautiful works of literature seeking to express the sinister evil that was being, that was being hid within the confines of the Soviet regime. And I don't know if you remember, he was in prison for a while for that. And he was, they couldn't kill him because they didn't want to make him a hero or a martyr. But they certainly didn't want him to live. Or, or closer to home, a Martin Luther King Jr. Who campaigned against the kind of prejudice that we were referencing earlier towards African Americans even in our own country in the civil rights movement. And who ultimately gave his life for that cause. You see, the gunmen didn't like him much. You see, this is what exposing the light means. It, means. it means when you are walking into the darkness, you actually put a target on your back. I mean, look at Stephen in the book of Acts. Look at Peter when he preaches. Look at Paul as he's stoned and thrown out of the city of Antioch. For goodness sakes, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean... You know, we have this discussion about, you know, the goodness of Christ. He was such a fine example. He was the most loving and kindest person there ever was. Then why did we kill him? Well, I'll tell you why we killed him. We killed him because he loved us so much that when the light came in, he exposed us to the core and we hated him for it. You see, Jesus says this is exactly what's going to happen. Those who do evil deeds love the darkness and for fear, they don't want to be exposed. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we are living the light of the world, the darkness doesn't come up and say, thank you. It says, I hate you. And Jesus says, take comfort. They hated me first. Now, now when I mention this, it's it's important that you realize I'm I'm not saying, I'm not saying be an arrogant jerk about it. Um, Some of us are like that. We add offense 
You know, we think, I guess the truth is not offensive enough. And so we come off with our conduct, with our way, with our manner, with our tone, with the way that we conduct ourselves, not as light, but as a chip on our shoulder. And, and when we do, we often receive barbs and attacks. And sometimes we'll even play the martyrdom card because of it. But in reality, we've reaped our own whirlwind because of our sinfulness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a light that is willing to stand firm and love all the way through it. You see, there's two temptations when the light exposes the darkness. The first temptation, which I see tremendously within our community, is to back down and give up. I didn't mean it that way. I'm not sure about that now. I didn't mean to... I didn't mean it that way. Maybe what I meant was something different. And we really kind of sell the farm spiritually and cease to be light. You know, Jesus, many of the times when he is working his way through the ministry and the Gospels, and he, I don't know if you noticed this, but when he speaks to the Pharisees, they don't like him a lot. And a lot of the reasons for that is because when he speaks to them, he is with piercing light exposing their heart. And sometimes when those who even want to come and follow him, like the rich young ruler, he says, what must I do to be saved? And he unpacks the law for him. And he says, you only have one thing left to do is sell everything you have and follow me. And it was really sad because he owned a lot of stuff. And Jesus was just saying, hey, listen, if you're going to follow me, your God can't be your money. And so you're going to have to give that up. And Jesus didn't say, He didn't see someone slip out the back door and say, oh, I'm afraid I said the wrong thing. I wished I'd been more, I I, I wished I'd run a better marketing campaign with him. We really lost him. That's not what Jesus does. He tells the truth. And he trusts the Spirit. So there's a tendency to to, to back down and give up, but there's there's a tendency to bow up and fight. I see this a lot too. You know, we, we think that the, oftentimes being a Christian means we've got to fight with the same fire that the world fights with. You know, if they're mean and if they're arrogant and if they're shouting with each other in the daytime talk show, then we must shout back at them. That somehow or another, by actually utilizing the means and the mechanisms of the world will somehow become more persuasive, which in reality we simply come off as more tawdry and just like the world. And so there's this tendency that we, would, that we would swing from one of these to the other, to back down or to bow up, and in one of the others not simply be what I think John Davidson Hunter wisely reflects on in his book, To Change the World, saying we should be faithfully present, which I think means to stand fast and love. Stand fast and love. You see, this, these words might sound familiar. You shall love your neighbor and you shall also love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's different. I mean, it would be really different, wouldn't it? When, you know, someone in school makes fun of you because you're, you know, you're not one of the cool kids. And, and when you're the new kid who's being bullied on the playground, and you as seeing this take place as an advocate, don't go and try to pick your own fight, but instead stand with the one who's attacked. 
and yet lovingly pray for those who are doing the tacking? And in the midst of it, begin to diffuse the situation rather than to exacerbate it? For the goal of being Christ in the middle of it? You know, so you don't get the job, even though you're overqualified it, because you politely refuse to participate in certain company initiatives that would contradict your Christian beliefs. What do you do? You sue them. You stand fast and you love and you pray for them. That the change would come. In other words, in the moment of your attack, you shine even brighter. You shine even brighter. Now, now listen... It's not a bad sign if the attacks come. In fact, in many cases, the attacks are a sign of health. It's a sign that something good is actually happening. And over time, as those attacks come, and as you stand fast in the truth, and as you love and turn the other cheek and walk the second mile and give them your overcoat when they want to steal your shirt, as you walk in the sacrifice and the discipline of the gloriousness of the gospel, you know what begins to happen? Not just exposing of the deeds of darkness, but transformation of people, places, and things. Because this light, Paul tells us here in this passage, doesn't just expose, it transforms. I want you to look with me at verses 13 and 14. Paul's economy of words here are somewhat difficult and somewhat challenging in what it is he's saying in verses 13 and 14. But I think... If you can look at it with me, you'll see that he says this light moves from being exposing to being transformative. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It comes out of the darkness. And then he says this, for anything that becomes visible is light. Is light. Now, th this is, from one level, it's, it's just kind of simple science. When, when the lights are off in a room, you just don't see stuff. And when you turn the lights on, you see stuff. It becomes, as it were, in that moment, visible. And that's the effect that a Christian has when he or she walks into the room. When they engage in relationships, when they join a, a community, when they are hired in a job, when they're working in a, a local organization. And I think when you hear the Apostle Paul say, when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible as light, I think, like John Stott, I believe, argues, this is the grand climax of what it is that Paul is arguing. He's arguing that light not only exposes what is in the darkness, but it has the power to convert the darkness into light. It is the power to convert the darkness into light. You see, you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, not just in light, you are light. You are light in the Lord. Your quality of nature and being were one thing, and now you are another thing. How did that change happen? It happened in the Lord. The Lord did that. He brings the transformation. How does he continue to do that? Through you, as his witness bearers of that light. You are his plan for reaching the darkness and for it to be transformed into the light. Now that is not to say 
that you have the power to do that. I mean, the light that you have is not even yours. It's the Lord's. But the Lord is in you. And the Lord in you has the power to become the Lord in them. The Lord in them. To being changed, to bring transformation. And what happens when Christians actually, counterintuitive to how we think, instead of soft-pedaling the light... When we definitively say, no, I will not do that, that is the unfruitful work of darkness, and we definitively say, yes, we will give ourselves to that because that's what God has called us to, rather than it merely being exposing and painful, if those in whom we are in relationship with move through the sting of that initial exposing, it can move to the redemption of their hearts. Isn't that how it worked for you? You learned first the bad news about yourself before you learn the good news about Christ. If you had heard the bad news about yourself and had responded, I'm a good gal. One out of ten, really? You're going to kill me for that? And you'd have responded defensively. You'd responded sensitively. You'd responded with a bunch of explanations. What you're telling us is that you're not yet ready for the light. You're doing what bugs do when you turn a rock over in your yard. The ugliness is being shown and they're creeping towards the darkness. They're scurrying as it, are, as it were to the corners where they're, afraid, where they're hoping the light won't reach them. You see, when we are preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ during Advent, we're asking the Lord to make us a light. We're asking the Lord to do deeper and greater levels of transformation within us. As Paul writes, to move from one degree of glory to the next. That's what we're asking them to do. And in this, he's telling us that as we say no to the things of the world and say yes to the things of God, real change begins to happen. Let me, I wanna, in closing, I want to give you three forms of change that you can expect. I think the first kind of change you can expect is restraining of sin. Is restraining of sin, restraining of darkness. I want you to think about this. If you're in a group of people who are doing something, if you're in an organization where sin is allowed and even encouraged or desired and you choose to decide not to do it, what often has the effect is the people around them, as they begin to go, oh, I guess you're right, they stop doing it around you and maybe even stop doing it altogether. I have this very vivid memory of a group of young boys who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty, um, of which I might or might not have been a part of, um, a group of young boys who were brainstorming about something that was unsavory. It was a part of the unfruitful works of darkness. And as we were brainstorming about this unfruitful work of darkness, one of the young men, I wish it had been me, it was not, and one of the young men said, we, we can't do this. This is wrong. I guarantee you what happened in that moment. You know what happened in that moment? Well, one of us encouraged him, said, oh, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. But then another couple of others said, I don't know. Maybe he's right. Yeah, think of what could be the outcome if you continue to move down this path. Yeah, it's beginning to look scary. What's happening? Restraint. Restraint. 
Now, it took an incredible amount of boldness and potentially complete rejection for that young man to step out in the courage of that moment. But by being light, what was the effect? And ultimately, praise the Lord, had this effect upon this squirrely group of young men. It had the effect of restraint. But it, it, had a, it has a second effect. And it, the second effect is reform. Is it actually over time doesn't simply hold back the darkness, but it actually begins to reform. It actually begins to bring change. I want you to think about this. I mean, some of you, you know, you're going to have these gatherings, right? Christmas gatherings, family, people, a lot of emotions. They're, they're going to be all over the place. Uh, emotions are going to run high. Relational weirdness. It's going to be everywhere. You know, they're going to come over and this is not going to be quite right and everything's got to be just perfect and tempers might flare and kids are going to complain. You know, all of those kind of things are going to happen as you gather with one another and you're going to be over there kind of suddenly like getting angry in your heart or you're going to have a little pity party or you're going to do something along those lines. You're going to give in to the unfruitful works of darkness or you could decide in that moment to move towards it in standing fast of truth and love. And instead of making a crisis a crisis, you turn it into an opportunity. Instead of it being a loss, you begin to move towards it in grace and it becomes a gain. Instead of it being something that was about to spiral out of control into a disaster, you begin to pick up the pieces and move it forward for redemption. And you've seen it. The person who decides in the moment when things are headed down a pretty negative path, step in there with light and it changes the ethos of a room. And it changes the hearts of the people in the room. And all of a the sudden, they're reminded of something. You know what they're reminded of? The light. They're seeing things clearly again. This is why we do church. You know, each Sunday, we come and we hear, essentially, the same thing. Over and over and over again. We hear about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power to change. The reformation of our lives. The new creation that comes in Christ. This, this beloved gospel that we love. And you know what? Every week you and I know we're going by God's grace to hear that. And every week. Why is it? It's always new. It's almost as if I'd never heard it before. See, the wisdom of the Lord is that you need to know the light over and over and over again to become the light and grow in it. And grow in it. And what happens with this is it becomes contagious. It becomes contagious. One person walks in the light, other people begin to experience the light from them. And it's the beauty of the kind of transformation that God can bring. You see, restrains evil, it reforms our circumstance situation, but the biggest one is it redeems our hearts. It redeems our hearts. And this is really what, this is really what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you are the light of the world, talking about us. He says, let your light shine before others. Why, Jesus? So that they might see, notice this, your good works and pat you on the back. No. They might see your good works and what? Glorify God who is in heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing this Christmas? If that family member, that neighbor who you know doesn't know the Lord experiences the love of Christ, His light in relationship with you and in so doing doesn't just simply say, man, he's a good guy. She's a great gal. 
They look into your eyes and they can see that there's something more profound at work. They can see that this is not a really nicely, well put together, good person. But they see someone who's deeply flawed but transformed. Someone who's real and gracious. Someone who's transparent and as visible as light and constantly reflecting the glory of God. And when they see your good works, they know you too well to know that it's from you. They know it's something about the Lord in you. And they glorify God who is in heaven. That's different. When we prepare for Christmas, we don't simply prepare by killing the fattened calf and wrapping up a bunch of gifts. We prepare our hearts by asking the Lord to illumine us, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and then to let your light shine before men that they might glory in God the Father. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, please do this work. Please do this work. For there is a dark world all about us. And there's a dark world inside of us. And but for the grace of God, it will get darker. But you, through the power of the lights that you have lit in this world through changed hearts, the kingdom can break in a little bit further and the light spread a little bit deeper and something of the dawn of a new day we begin to see on the horizon and as we watch for the light it comes so Lord Jesus make this Christmas and every Christmas about your light we ask this in Jesus name Amen